welcome to biota.org chat. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, an apology to Gerald de Jong. About three or four months ago, I started putting a chat with Gerald and myself in the feed, and it stopped abruptly. And it stopped abruptly primarily due to Skype reasons, and the fact that Gerald was recording on his end and I was recording on my end, and the recording went terribly out of phase. But also, it was just purely due to my own laziness. So for that, I need to apologise to Gerald de Jong. His website and project, darwinathome.org, have to recommend that to all. And in particular, I'd like to welcome a wide variety of new folk to this podcast that have heard about the biota.org project through the deep linking of the Douglas Adams audio, which started on Boing Boing and went through probably tens of sites that I was tracking, trying to get the biota message out as well. It's wonderful to have the Douglas Adams talk as part of the Biota legacy, but contemporary Biota is pretty fun as well, and that was really the message that I was trying to get out. Somewhat fraughtly through richarddawkins.net, and a lot of folk have come over to this podcast from richarddawkins.net. I had some brief correspondence with regards to the higher-ups, including Professor Dawkins himself, and I'd like to offer a hand outstretched to Professor Dawkins to come on these podcasts. He's had an open invitation for about a year now. I appreciate the man's very busy. However, if any folk who are listening on richarddawkins.net want to contact the good professor directly, it would be wonderful to have him in the biota.org interviews, chat, conversations, feed, whatever format he wants, basically. I'd just be happy to have him on if he wants a group of artificial life developers to have a conversation with them or a one-on-one chat or a traditional interview all these options are open it's always a pleasure to have biologists in the feed because they always bring new insight to artificial life so particularly topical i thought i'd put this second part of the three-part recording into the feed and in this section gerald jung and i talk about professor dawkins somewhat ironically so i thought it was topical and timely that i put it in the feed Some final bits of news. The podcast page for biota.org is up and running. One of the Boing Boing linkers found the work-in-progress version of the podcast page, which required me to put about a day's worth of work getting the full version up and running, so biota.org slash podcast. And also, I will be appearing on Podcast 411, which is a podcast about podcasters, this Monday, apparently. However... There is going to be a podcast that goes in the feed, hopefully, Sunday evening, which will be of particular interest to a large number of folks in the podcast, second only to Professor Dawkins, the most requested interviewee, or soon to be interviewed, will be appearing in the feed shortly, so stay tuned for that one. We move from this idea of static structures to moving structures, and then the ideas of genetics, and in your own development, the work of Dawkins was critical. Can you discuss that a little bit? What I've been playing with from the beginning, and the reason why I called it uh, fluidium initially, was that um, that there's a there's a fluidity in these uh, in these in these geometries, and and it's uh, it's fascinating to see to see how they behave, and uh, so you know eventually I. I had the software set up to really be able to play with behavior. I would uh, uh, generate a tensegrity and sort of drop it and and watch it react to uh, hitting the floor. So I was doing all sorts of uh, experiments like this, and then at one point I thought, hey, let's see if we can see if I can think of some sort of genetic approach. It was that move that Dawkins crystallized in your own mind. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah, actually, uh, I'm I'm uh, signed up to RichardDawkins.net, um, and uh, they they had a mailing recently because he turned 66, 
and they asked people to uh, submit uh, gifts, and I submitted an image in, in which I said, uh, uh, you, you once said to me, yes, you could evolve these. And then I said, uh, Digital Biota 2, uh, 1998, I think it was. And then uh, down below in big letters, I, I wrote, uh, I, just, I did just that. So that was my birthday uh, greeting to uh, Professor Dawkins. But uh, I was completely blown away by his books because uh, for, for sort of my... I have a, a you know, mathematical uh, background and, and more or less in, in the um, sort of discrete mathematics where you talk about, you know, uh, groups and, and uh, sets of things rather than talking about differential equations and, and curves and things. So it's more of the discrete end of things. And I was completely fascinated with the clear descriptions he had of how the the discrete genetic mechanism um, was behind all of the uh, you know biological complexity that we see. And and to say how clearly, you know, how clearly that you know goes from digital to uh, the analog. I thought it was so fascinating. Anyway, I, that that inspired me because I, I really started to understand how the process of evolution worked. I reflect on this quite a bit because when I read Initial Artificial Life text and got interested, Dawkins was one of them. But at the time that I read his stuff, and I I must have read it in the early nineties, I'm assuming, maybe late eighties, early nineties. It already immediately appeared to me that this stuff had been discussed. It was to use the Dawkins term. It was already part of the kind of mimetic narrative that I had been exposed to, and. It, it fascinates me, the idea that prior to reading Dawkins, some people, yourself included, I guess, from what you're saying, did not have an appreciation for the stuff that Dawkins talks about. I'm, I'm trying to understand the world prior to Dawkins for Gerald de Jong with regards to just an understanding of the biological world. Can you remember that? Yeah, and, and he sort of made me understand how it's possible to... Um, by sort of jiggling mindlessly with uh, the uh, the instructions, you know, to to have actual improvements improvements appear because of a certain challenge and survival differential. Yeah, it's completely you know basic uh, idea of evolution. So uh, Darwin at home basically takes that and and tries it out. In a, in a, you know, basically a completely mathematical system, just a bunch of numbers, vectors all over the place. Dawkins is is obviously the uh, um, the the inst he's been instrumental in in introducing a new idea about uh, how evolution works. Uh, you know, he he talks about Darwin with with great respect. Are you talking about metics specifically here? I'm I'm losing the metaphors. No, 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 not not at all, not at all. Specifically, is uh, the uh, central role of the of the reproduction of the reproductive material, central role, and that's that's the thing. Um, like, what is striving to survive, and just uh, things like uh, you know when he says, I, I heard in a, in a fairly recent speech of his where he says. Uh, you know, a rhinoceros is an extremely roundabout way of for for rhinoceros genes to create new rhinoceros genes. 
you know so that's it's 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 as if my understanding of evolution prior to that was uh you know i understood uh you know genes and and survival and things like this but but to actually focus in and say the gene is leading and not the individual you know it's the part that is the the language of what's going on here it's not the holes it's not the individuals so also that that actually forms the core difference between uh noble ape and and darwin at home because uh you know i'm working towards something i'm calling a coalition which you know you might call an individual and you started at the individuals and went on what interested me about the the kind of exposition of this discussion is that when I came to look at what was actually going on with the genetics, the genetics were initially going to be in Nobleap, the genetics were initially going to be programmed in as a means of some kind of micro uh, evolution with regards to finite kind of tuning adjustment more than anything with regards to certain things. And my, as you as you've repeatedly noted, my initial interest with re, with with regards to the cognitive development. But what fascinated me with not putting so much emphasis on uh, the genetic component of noble ape is that when I came back to actually do long-term study on what was going on with the genetics, there was very strong uh, evolutionary components, there was very strong kind of implicit components that I hadn't explicitly programmed that came out through using those structures. What interested me recently, having put into the feed, I'm not sure if you've heard the Larry Yeager talk from Biota 2 yet that went into the feed, but Larry Yeager talks about this idea of the being very simple components that need to go in in order for evolution to take place. And I thought that was very receptive to my own kind of tinkerings with Noble Ape. In thinking over the past two weeks of what we've discussed, what has struck me is my interest in, in some sense, creating chaos and then seeing things come through and your construction with regards to trying to create as stable an evolutionary environment as possible. Now, this is something that's always resonated in my own reading of Dawkins, particularly, I think, the blind watchmaker reflection, that the way in which Dawkins constructs simulated genetics is to do with, there are these two ideas of a theory. The first is a theory that explains the worldview perfectly which a number of political and philosophic and even religious views have in terms of be explaining the current world. And then there is this idea of a predictive theory. You know, this is the analysis of what physics is versus other things in some regard, is the ability to predict and create a, construct an idea set or a set of new developments or a set of things that are in fact moving into the future. In terms of your own reading of Dawkins, the mimetic stuff is fascinating in terms of its discussion with regards to potential prediction of, of ideas, particularly. Well, what is your own thinking in terms of moving what Dawkins says into something which is discussive of the future as opposed to something which has talked about the past? Well, you know, mimetics is, is, uh, is something that people uh, have, have talked about in all sorts of different ways. I mean, to me, it's uh, the, the whole idea is, uh, you know, the second replicator. Um, the first thing that replicated on Earth was, uh, was DNA molecules. 
uh, and the second thing was ideas. So in our discussion of the, in the conversations with regards to the Cambrian period, there was some discussion of the idea of when, not even thought, but when, you know, motivations towards food and these kind of things occurred. Do you take that as being the kind of seminal point for the mimetic idea? Do you take that as the, the, the point that, that memes started when these organisms were slithering their way or squelching or moving in some way through fluids towards feeding grounds? Do you think that's where the, the, the first meme came from? Or do you think it's actually a more high level thing? You have to look at it. Um, you have to look at it in terms of what what genes are. I mean, what what genes are is uh, is an instruction set that replicates itself uh, in a particular context. So, if you want to look at uh, memes, you have to look at the idea of replication. So, uh, replication of a meme means that it, basically a behavior pattern of some kind or other is taken over from one individual to another and so it's just a question of how uh, complex and sort of uh, multi-purpose the, the 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 imitation is but it's a process of imitation in in memes imitation is the equivalent of replication so uh, if you know if certain uh, monkeys can learn tricks from other monkeys then uh, then memes are born you know they start to uh, communicate these ideas in different ways and and it's all about imitation so in terms of a predictive theory in terms of a theory that moves itself into the future how do you see Dawkins both on genetics and mimetics with regards to theories that project into the future I'm not sure there's a lot of predictability uh, in mimetics especially since it's uh, you know in many circles not really considered to be uh, an actual science I suppose um, but it does uh, provide new angles for, you know, critical thinking, for example, because you can you can always look at yourself and say, wait a second, uh, is this idea to my advantage or is it not to my advantage? And um, you know, it becomes clear from understanding Dawkins that uh, whether it's to your advantage or not is not a. a, a related to its ability to make you do things. You know, it's not you don't do everything that's good for you. You do everything that you do and and you know whatever whatever behavioral patterns you can uh, you adopt, you know, they're not all good. So, uh you you start to understand that the reason things get this way is because the the ideas that replicate are successful. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the good ideas will spread. It means that ideas that replicate are successful, and it's simple as that. So, uh, you know, um, you might say at this point in history, uh, a good set of memes would involve understanding how finite the Earth is and how uh, we should sort of start uh, buckling down and trying to understand how we can do this life thing in, in a low impact way so we can do it for a few more hundred years and uh, you know that would be a great bunch of memes to spread but they don't spread as well as other ones and you don't necessarily blame the hosts I mean people are what they are
What interests me about memetics, and particularly reading the, the kind of diverging views of memetics, which is in some sense contributing to what you're discussing about it not being recognised as a science or even a social science in, in some circles anymore, is the idea that commerce actually is a component to memetic theory that is not really addressed by some uh, memeticists, and when it's addressed by others, it, it forms an interesting characteristic. What's what's your own thinking with regards to commerce in memetics? Um, well, I don't know. I, I can't. Uh, I can't. I don't can't say I've seen any particular aversion to to speaking in terms of of, uh, of memetics in commerce. I I would. I would be I no let me let me let me say this if you have if you have a bunch of people in in a in a room uh, you know very very smart people working to uh, help you assess risks and decide what to do and and how to invest money and you've got you know billions of dollars that you've got to uh, channel in the right directions and you've got these very smart people and sitting in a room thinking hard if these people don't think in terms of memetics you know, in other words, in terms of uh, how ideas spread and and how like uh, herd behavior uh, in in investments happens or something, you know, then these people are are going to lose out. So, I imagine it's, it 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 might not be called that, but but people are working on these things all the time. What interests me personally currently is the momentum of junk science, and this is science that is paid for by particular industries to actually discount and remove certain ideas so it appears to be science to all until you scratch the surface and actually appreciate that they've lost a large portion of their research in order to produce something which is in fact in no way science what fascinates me with mimetic theory is that it it needs some analysis to say that if you have money and if you have means to put an idea out there, pure and simple memetics is with regards to that we all exist in villages and communicate in these amazing kind of discrete thought patterns that build momentum and things like that. But the reality is that, that those that have money, those that have uh, economic benefits, can put their ideas out into, into the, the discussive ether far faster than people that are trying on a grassroots level. That depends somewhat on, on, on where you are in the world. I mean, it's not, not always that way to the same degree everywhere. You know, there's a... There's a, a if you want to look at evolution and, and, you know, robust ecosystems and something, you know, you've got uh, the notion of media. And, and if media is concentrated, you know, to a great degree, that's, that's an evolutionary consequence. Something is going to happen as a result of focusing the media power in, in particular places and, and you know uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely so you know you, you it, it, that's a mimetic statement as well because to the people who are corrupted it probably doesn't even seem like corruption and that is not strange you know in a mimetic point of view that's not strange people believe things I, I appreciate a kind of Spencerian mimetic view that that would be the case but I think in, in my own reading and in my own thinking with regards to the ideas of memetics, the lack of discussion with regards to uh, economics and also this, the, the, I mean, it is an idealized view about how communication goes through ideas. Why is it idealized? Because what you have just said is a series of, of truisms in some regard, but there are ways that circumvent 
components of, of mimetic theory that are purely due to commerce, in, in my analysis. And the strengths and the weightings associated with particular ideas, you say, well, you know, it's evolution over time, and the, the reality is that the people that are in particular positions of economic or uh, political or regional power have done so through generations of structural shifts and things like that. Yeah, and, 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 and mind-numbing media. Years and years and years of mind-numbing media. That has an effect. Very true. But I think the difference between predictive theories and theories that explain a kind of current world view are, are in fact perhaps highlighted by this discussion. I, I, you know, memetics might, might be... Uh not able to predict what the next trend will be, but you can certainly look at the factors that tend to lead to, you know, uh, large, uh, um, you know, behavior phenomena on a large scale. Um, you know, you might, you might be uh, led to look for different things and, you know, not, uh, not really pay so much attention to the individuals, but look at the ideas themselves and how they're being presented and how they come across and what, uh, you know, that, that these things affect what people do more than the people themselves, sort of. Like, we, we have, like, if you want to talk about uh, economy, you know, we have a whole bunch of assumptions about how the money system works, uh, but uh, we also have this sort of black magic going on. There's, you know, nobody really knows what's going on. And 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 we've got this this conundrum, uh, this strange thing called the stock market, where where uh, you know if you uh, trade with knowledge of what's going on, you're doing something illegal. I think the stock market is an interesting example, but I reflect on a recent TED conference where a fellow stood up and said, "We really don't understand quantum mechanics and and these kind of things," and I it hit me really hard that when people say we don't actually understand something, it is more a comment about the the localized understanding. The thing that struck me from the TED conference in particular, having listened to all the various components and then this fellow standing up and saying that, was that it was following a very tight uh, worldview, for want of a better cliche. And when the fellow stood up and said, we don't really understand quantum mechanics, it struck me that somewhere along the line, some experiences that I and perhaps my peers that studied physics had, had, had experienced and also perhaps some of my readings or things like that meant that I was, in fact, to return to very primitive analogies in a completely different tribe to this individual who had stood up and said that he didn't understand quantum mechanics uh, or that we as a collective group didn't understand it. Thank you very much for listening to this biota.org chat. Apologies once again to Gerald de Jong for my sheer negligence and laziness with regards to editing this podcast together. The third of third should be available relatively soon as well. I'm debating keeping the next interviewee's podcasts in one solid chunk. However, I may put Gerald's final musings into the feed to encourage Gerald and I to have another one of these chats, because it's always fun. Similarly, John Klein in the near future, hopefully, and Bruce Damer, and maybe even Professor Dawkins himself. The invitation is always open. If you want to contact me, tom at noble8.com. You could also get in contact with me through the front of the biota.org podcast page, biota.org slash podcast. 
Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. Look forward to you tuning into the next podcast.